Now, I wonder, dear friends, have you heard the story of the minister whose car was involved in an accident and he took it along to the mechanic to get it repaired? He took the car to the mechanic and the mechanic agreed to do the work. And then, before he left, the minister said, when I go easy on me when you give me the bill because I'm just a poor preacher and the mechanic said yes I know I heard you yesterday (laughs) (laughs) now you've heard me many many times so here's the poor preacher again this evening and as Sandy has intimated him It was suggested to me that when I came again that uh, I would continue the great theme of eschatology which is just the great name for the doctrine of the last things touching of course on Bible prophecy. And the Lord willing over the weeks that lie ahead we shall be dealing with some aspects of of this great subject of eschatology and this evening we're going to make a start by turning to the word of God and we're turning to Hebrews chapter 9 please Hebrews chapter 9 and I want to turn your attention to uh, verse 24 25 26 27 and 28 Hebrews chapter 9 Now you notice in these verses that the writer whoever he was he makes reference to the three appearance of our Lord for example in verse 26 he says for then must he that is Jesus often have suffered since the foundation of the world but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself now when the writer says the end of the world it's not used in the prophetic sense it simply means more literally from the Greek the completion of the ages in which when we're told when the fullness of time was come God sent forth his son as used in that sense so there we have in verse 26 the past appearing of our Lord and that happened nearly 2,000 years ago when he was born in Bethlehem of Judea and commenced his ministry so there in verse 26 you have his past appearance now look at verse 24 it says for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us So there in verse 24, we have his present appearing in heaven. When he was on earth, he could not be a great high priest, 
For the simple reason he did not come from the tribe of Levi, he came from the tribe of Judah. But when he ascended back to heaven, he then became a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And uh, that's part of his ministry at the present time. He's appearing in the presence of God on behalf of his people as our great high priest, ever living to make intercession for us. So in verse 26 you have his past appearance. In verse 24 you have his present appearance in the glory. But look at verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And that's his future appearance. That's when he comes the second time. So in verse 26, his past appearance. Verse 24, his present appearance. And then 28, it anticipates when he shall return the second time. Now when the writer says in verse 28, shall he appear the second time? He's actually comparing our Lord's second appearing with his first appearing. There's a contrast, there's a comparison between the two. And what we're going to do this evening, dear friends, we're going to have a look at this great subject of the second advent of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to do it in this way. We're going to compare his second coming with his first coming. And as we do so, we shall see how the Bible clearly sets forth this tremendous truth that the Lord Jesus is going to return the second time. He came the first time, and he will surely come the second time. So first of all then, here's the first thought. He came the first time, so he shall surely come the second time. Now when we think of his first coming, there are three things that aptly describe his first coming which are unmistakable. First of all, it was a personal coming. He didn't send an angel or an archangel to recommend him or to represent him. No, he came personally. He came himself. For example, Paul says, uh, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came personally. But also, his first coming was a literal coming. It wasn't spiritually, it was a literal coming. Because the Bible says that God was manifested in the flesh. In other words, he was literal. You could handle him. You could touch him. You could speak to him. You could hear him. It was a literal coming. 
And then thirdly, it was a visible coming. Because John says, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten, the Father, full of grace and truth. So that the first come of the Lord, it was personal, it was literal, it was visible. And those are indisputable facts borne out by the word of God. Now then... When we think of his second coming, those three things will characterize his second advent. It's going to be a personal coming. Here's what Paul says. He says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the ark. Notice, the Lord himself Nicholas said an angel, the Lord himself. So it's going to be a personal coming. And then of course it's going to be a literal coming. Because if you remember the angels in Acts chapter 1, as they saw Jesus ascending back to heaven, they said to the disciples, why stand ye gazing up? This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So it's going to be a literal second advent. And then of course it's going to be a visible advent. Revelation chapter 1 says, Behold, I, he comes quickly, and every eye shall see him, even those that uh, pierced him. So the three things that characterized his first advent is the same three things that's going to characterize his second uh, advent. Personal, literal, visible. It's very interesting when you think of this subject. Do you know that it is referred to in the Bible 1,800 times? Think of it. 1,800 times it's referred to directly or indirectly in the Bible. In fact, it has been reckoned that on average, one verse in every 13 verses has a reference directly or indirectly concerning his second advent. Someone has also said that even in the New Testament, we have at least 300 references to the second coming of the Lord. So it's not just an isolated verse here and there, but something that is part and parcel of the inspired and infallible word of God. Well then, take for example, it was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. Let me give you one or two examples. Take Isaiah chapter 9. A verse that we associate with Christmas time. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
And his name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Now you find in Old Testament prophecy that sometimes uh, the first event and the second event are almost compressed together. Even though there's a period of time that separates them. Under us a son is given. Under us a child is born. There's a reference to his, his first coming, Bethlehem of Judea. But when he was here on earth the first time, the government was not on his shoulder. He was despised and he was rejected and he was crucified. But when he comes the second time, then that is going to be literally fulfilled. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And then the world shall experience not democracy, not dictatorship, but theocracy. The rule of God himself. The government upon his shoulder. What a day that's going to be. But our Lord Jesus takes control and reigns king of kings and lord of lords take for example Zechariah chapter 14 it says his feet shall stand upon the mount of olives the very place where we ascended from in Acts chapter 1 when he returns his feet shall stand on that day upon the mount of olives that's just two references about the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Zechariah. Then, of course, we've noticed it was proclaimed by the angels. Have you ever noticed the angels are very much involved in our Lord's life? They announced his second advent. When he was tempted with the devil in the wilderness, they came and ministered unto him. In the garden of Gethsemane, an angel came and strengthened him. When he rose from the dead, it was the angels that said, Why seek you the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And when he ascended back to heaven, it was the angels who announced his second advent. This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. So it was proclaimed by the angels. Then of course we find it was preached by the apostles. This was part of the apostolic doctrine. And we find that the apostles that they, they mentioned in their epistles concerning this great truth of the second advent. Paul dealt with it in 1 Thessalonians. Peter refers to it that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth might be found on the glory and honor at the appearance of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, John makes reference to it. He says that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And James, he refers to it. He says, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. So it's part of apostolic doctrine. We're believing something that was clearly taught by the apostles of 
of our Lord. But dear friends, if we didn't have the predictions by the Old Testament prophets, or the proclamation by the angels, or the preaching of the apostles, then notice this, it was promised by the Saviour himself. Think of John chapter 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. He made a promise. I will come again. And if we have nothing else, then we can depend upon his word, his promise. Because remember what he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He never told a lie. And every promise he has given will be literally fulfilled. It was promised by the Lord. So there's the first comparison. He came the first time, so he shall surely come the second time. Here's a second thought. He came the first time as a weak, helpless babe. He's coming the second time in power and glory. Tell me, friends, what is more helpless, what is more weak? than a newborn babe. Those of you who are mothers or fathers, we think back when our children were born, the little baby, so helpless. And when our Lord Jesus came the first time, that's how he came, born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem of Judea. That's how he came the first time. But when he comes the second time, it's not going to be as a weak, helpless babe. That's what he's with. He's coming in power and in glory. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember? He took Peter, James and John. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was uh, transformed. He was transfigured. His face shone like the brightness of the noonday sun. And his God became white and glistening. What was happening? It was this. The deity that was within his humanity began to shake, began to break forth. And uh, there we have a foretaste, a foreglimpse of his glory. Because remember, dear friends, when our Lord was here upon earth, forget this idea of a halo above his head and some of the pictures you might see. None of that. In many ways, he was undistinguishable between other men. But on this occasion, he was transfigured. And when he comes a second time, it will be in power. It will be in glory. It will be in splendor. And oh, what a sight that's going to be when he comes in that manner. But then notice thirdly, he came the first time and was despised and rejected. But the second time he's going to be acknowledged 
as Lord. How sad it is, dear friends, when he came the first time, what happened? He was despised and he was rejected of men. He was spat upon. He was scourged. And evil men did not rest content until they took our lovely Lord and they crucified him on the cross outside of Jerusalem. Stark naked on the cross. What humiliation, what shame, what degradation. That's how they treated him when he came the first time. The lovely man, Christ Jesus despised, rejected came onto his world, onto his own and his own received him that they had no time for him and sad to say it was the hypocritical religious rulers who did not rest content until they had got rid of him so they thought by crucified him on the cross ah but when he comes the second time it's not to be spat upon and scourged. That's all for his friends. Because the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory. And when he comes a second time, it will be to be acknowledged as Lord. Think of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that tremendous portion. That he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross down, 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 down even the death of the cross the next verse says listen very carefully wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name listen to this that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess what? that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father what a day that's going to be when they see him whom they despised and rejected our dear friends if you don't bow in grace you most certainly will bow in judgment. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Have you bowed the knee? If you haven't, one day you will. Thank God for us who have bowed the knee in grace. Think of that great crowd. Look, there's Professor Richard Dawkins the militant atheist who denies the existence of God who wrote the book The God Delusion which is a bestseller sold in millions there he is he's among the crowd and he has to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord there's Christopher Hitchens who has since died another atheist there he is among them and he has to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus what a day that's going to be when he comes and is acknowledged as Lord sovereign Lord of the universe let me say fourthly he came the first time to suffer 
and die. But he's coming the second time. First of all to complete the salvation of his people. And to punish the Christ rejecter. Think of the first one. To complete the salvation of his people. And what a day that's going to be when he comes. And those of us who are saved. He's going to complete the salvation that we have. We'll have to take time in the weeks that lie ahead to, to go into this. Because there are those who, are, who have died in Christ. Either been buried or cremated. And uh, the second advent is going to affect them. Thank God there are those who will be living when he comes. They are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last. We'll have to look at that in the weeks that lie ahead. So he's coming to complete the salvation of his people. You see, dear friends, when God commences a work, he never leaves it half done. He always finishes what he commences. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. Being confident of this very thing. That he which hath commenced a good work in you. Shall perform it. Shall complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. You see if you started the work. You would have to finish it. The devil defeats you every day. You don't watch for him. But you see you didn't start the work. It was God who started it in your life and my life. He started the work. And what God starts, he will complete. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. Dear Christian, do you know why God has saved you? To me it is very sad that many of God's people... They don't seem to know the reason why God has saved them. Do you know? Oh, you say, Stanley, that's easy. He has saved me from a lost eternity. Oh, that, that's wonderful, friend. But that's negative. That's true, of course. But uh, here's the real reason why God has saved you. And this is his plan that he's working towards. And you have it in Romans chapter 8. In which Paul deals with the great subject of predestination and foreknowledge and election. And these are subjects many of God's people, and sad to say, even preachers avoid. Oh, don't touch those subjects. They're far too deep. They're far too involved. But dear friends, it's in the Bible. There is such a thing as predestination. There is such a thing as foreknowledge. And uh, the Bible says that he whom God has foreknown, he has predestined, listen to this, to be conformed to the image of his dear son. That's why he saved you. That's the purpose. That's the plan. That when he's finished with you, you are going to be a replica, as it were, of his beloved and dear son, conformed to his image. I have to confess in many ways I'm so unlike the Saviour. 
And I'm sure if you're honest, you also say the same. I'd like it. But one day, we are going to be conformed to his image. And have you ever noticed the logic in Romans chapter 8? Because remember this. Paul had a tremendous logical mind. And I have no hesitation whatever in saying if he was alive today, he could have been a university professor. Such was his logical mind. And in Romans 8, the most systematic of all his letters, you can see something of the logic coming out. He that despised not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Do you see the logic there? If he has not withheld the greater, he will not withhold the lesser. If he spurred not his own son, but delivered him up for his own, there's the logic, there's the, the greatness. Then it stands the reason, it stands the logic. If he's not withheld the greater, he will not withhold the lesser. And that's the plan God's working to, that we might be conformed to the image of his beloved son. That's all part of the completion of God's salvation in us, which will take place when the Lord Jesus returns. Now, over the years, dear friends, I've discovered this. There are many of God's people, very sincere, I might say, and they're interested in eschatology, interested in Bible doctrine, interested in prophecy and so forth. And they just want to get their minds full of all these things. So they study it, they read books, to accumulate a lot of knowledge and facts. But let me say this very graciously, dear friends. That's not God's purpose in giving us these prophetic things. Not to just to fill your mind with these things. It has to have an effect upon your life and my life. And that is why it's spoken of in the Bible as a hope. Ever notice that? Looked upon as a hope. Now I have to explain. When the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't use the word hope as we use it today in the 21st century. When we use the word hope, things could happen, but there again, they may not happen. Could happen, may not happen, and we hope it does happen. But in the Bible, hope is never used that way. Sometimes when my boys were growing up and they were asking me things that were maybe too expensive, I usually say sometimes, well, I, you've got two hopes. Bob hope and no hope. <laughs> you say, no use hope and you don't get it. You say, my poor preacher, couldn't afford it. But when the Bible used the word hope, it used it in the sense of certainty, of assurance. And in the Bible, it is described as a blessed hope. Titus, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, 
Christ Jesus. It's a blessed hope. Ah, but listen to this. Not just a blessed hope. It's a purifying hope. Here's what John says in in 1 John chapter 3. An old man in his 90s. I visited a a man in Carluke. And in April he'll be 101 years of age. Lovely old man, 101 years of age. Think of that. Well, John was in his 90s. When he took up his pen and he wrote 1 John, 2 John and 3 John. And in 1 John chapter 3, he says, Behold. That's the only time he used the word behold in that letter. Behold. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And the next verse says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is. You see the effect? It should have a purifying effect upon our lives. How we think, how we talk, how we act, where we go, what we do. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is coming again, and that trouble's going to sound, then surely it's bound to have a, a purifying effect upon us. A blessed hope, a purifying hope. Ah, but it is a comforting hope. Here's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, after expounding concerning the second advent of Christ, he says, Wherefore, comfort one another, with these words. You see some of those dear believers had died. Others were anxious what's happened to them. And Paul gave them instructions with regard to those that fell asleep or had died. And after he gave the teaching he said I comfort one another with these words. And as a pastor over the years I have conducted many, many funerals. I have stood beside, I have stood beside the graveside and led to rest some of God's wonderful people. But it's always in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection unto life eternal. In other words, death may hold us for a time, it won't hold us forever. And when the Lord comes and the trumpet sounds, then all of God's redeemed people are going to join together and they're going to sing a tremendous song. And what's it going to be? Oh death, where is thy sting? Oh grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I must say, Hallelujah. What a saviour. What a subject. A comforting hope. Death shall not have the last word. 
it is only until he comes. So let me pick it all together, friends. He came the first time, he shall surely come the second time. He came the first time to, as a weak, helpless babe. He's coming again in power and glory. Came the first time and was despised and rejected. Coming the second time to make knowledge as Lord. Came the first time to suffer and die. He's coming the second time to complete the salvation of you and of me. With such a blessed hope in view, we would more holy be, more like our risen glorious Lord, whose face we soon shall see. Tell me, have you ever thought of that moment, that blessed moment, in which for the first time you're going to look upon the face of Jesus? Ever thought of it? ever thought of it, you're going to see him in all his glory, in all his majesty, in all his splendor. What a tremendous hope. Have you ever noticed that when someone dies, especially in the world, they always look upon it as a loss. Ever noticed that? That's how they speak of it. Could be a big businessman and all what a loss. He's left everything behind him. Have you ever noticed that when the Apostle Paul speaks of death, he says something amazing. He says, for me to live is Christ. Listen to this. And to die is gain. <laughs> the world thinks it's loss. When you die. But Paul said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You say to me, whatever could he gain? Oh, you see, that's all part of the great subject of eschatology. 